Welcome to the Tax Credits and Incentives Advisory Podcast. I'm Marty Kierman, and today we're going to cover some things to consider as you make investments in technology or look at the return on investment of making such an investment. Being proactive from the start on contract terms, time tracking, or key documents specific to software development to the software development lifecycle can make a difference. With me today is Dan Mendel and Vivian Kors, both leaders in Cherry Beckard's Tax Credits and Incentives Advisory Practice, also known as TCIA. Dan and Vivian, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Um, why don't we start it off with a few introductions. Uh, Dan, where are you today? And um, and what's your role here at Cherry Beckard? Thanks, Marty. Yep, I reside in in Northern California, so I sit in the heart of Silicon Valley. Uh, I've worked with technology companies for 20 plus years. Uh, excited to be part of the practice within TCIA with the emphasis and focus on R&D tax credits. And Vivian, uh, where are you and uh, what's your role here? I'm physically in Princeton, New Jersey. It is a lovely day today, so I'm enjoying that. Um, my main focus is around R&D tax credits. Been doing it for 10 years now um, around either you know software development type companies, startup companies, or even in the medical device industry, all over really all industries. And I am a director at Cherry Beckert and really, as Marty would say, doing all the heavy lifting here. Absolutely you are. All right. Well, the reason we're doing this podcast today, honestly, is because uh, every company is making some investment in software. And um, we wanted to really focus on that and get some get some information out there for both clients and our listeners uh, with respect to some of the tax credit benefits that can come along with that. To level set, today we're going to talk about the IRC Section 41 research credit. Um, it's one of the most lucrative credits available to taxpayers. It provides permanent offset to tax liabilities. It's an activity-based credit, meaning that if a taxpayer is performing specific types of activities about which Dan will speak, the costs incurred to perform those activities go into a separate tax credit calculation. Um, here at Cherry Becker within TCIA, the majority of our practice is focused on working with companies to identify and document qualifying research activities. So Dan, let's kick it off. Um, why don't you share with the audience the kinds of investments we're talking about and um, how the, the R&D credit can impact the return on investment analysis. Thanks, Marty. Happy to do that. One of the great things about being an R&D credit SME is how much time we get to spend doing deep dives into our clients' technology. I know uh, some of the tax VPs over the years have been somewhat envious that, you know, at the end of a project, we spend a month or two with their top uh, engineers and developers, and we, we know more about the company's technology than they do. Uh, the kind of investments we're talking about here are far-reaching and really nuanced. Any investment in technology that utilizes labor resources that meet the four-part test listed in Section 41 of the credit code can qualify. And if you're not familiar, a quick refresher on what those four tests are. You have a permitted purpose, element of uncertainty, a process of experimentation, and it has to be technological in nature. And anyone that's not familiar with that will direct you at the end to our website. We have plenty of materials that go much deeper into that overview of the four-part test. But some specific examples of investments that could qualify in and around technology. Uh, the first one's around ER. P implementations. This isn't the off-the-shelf software. You know, the the developer of the software, whether that's Oracle or SAP, they they get an RD credit for actually developing the system. This really relates to the customization of an implementation. And uh, a lot of people don't realize what a significant investment of time there is in most implementations. Historically, I've seen that be somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 percent 
qualifying for the R&D credit on large implementations. Another example of significant improvements to a manufacturing facility uh, using new processes and new software. Many companies right now are focused on enhancing or improving throughput and yield. And to accomplish this, you often have to use technology, new software, new pieces of equipment. And a lot of times that equipment can't be used as it was originally designed and requires customization that may void the warranty. We'll talk later about you know, the types of things you wanna document as it relates to these examples. Um, a lot of supply chain issues have surfaced over the last year or two. Um, anyone following the news has seen that. When that happens, this impacts a lot of industries, recipes or formulas, not recipe like a restaurant, but um, most companies, whether it's uh, a chemical manufacturer, paint, even semiconductor, there's this concept of a recipe or formula and one small impact to the supply chain can throw off the entire recipe and you have to recertify, reevaluate, and uh, there's uncertainty and experimentation, going back to that four-part test. Uh, lastly, many clients today want greater visibility with dashboards or other tools that require companies to hire outside consultants or even use their own internal IT team if they have a large uh, IT department. And many of these solutions are not off the shelf and they require unique coding to get them to work with legacy systems. So that's already kind of a quick summary of three or four types of initiatives um, that uh, technology uh, helps enhance. Yeah, and thanks, Dan. And I think the way when I'm talking with clients, the way I like to articulate the four-part test is really, you know, to the extent any taxpayer um, is attempting to develop an a new or improved software design where there is true technical, uh, we'll call it computer science uncertainty at the outset, the time spent by either the employees or third party contractors addressing those uncertainties, in some ways are almost a de facto process of experimentation satisfying the statute when um, when you think about just the normal software development life cycle. So that's, that's what we're talking about uh, in this case. Um, and that's very common, uh, whether it's an off the shelf system that they're making enhancements to, or a start from scratch uh, software development initiative. So, you know, that overview gave was great. And I think those examples were excellent. Vivian, when you think about these kinds of investments, what do you think are the keys, key things to consider um, in how we document um, for these types of investments when we're thinking about um, ultimately preparing the credit calculation and uh, preparing it for eventual or potential IRS defense? Absolutely. That's honestly 90% of my job. <laughs> to, <laughs> adequate, to adequately document these types of investments, you really need to be well-versed in the nuances of the IRS rules and case law. So kind of to piggyback off of Dan's example around ERP, which is traditionally a pretty risky area for the R&D tax credit, there is specific guidance as to what qualifies and what does not qualify. So the key is to line up you know, our clients' facts to the examples um, of what is actually qualifying. Like Dan said, the straightforward configuration implementation of off-the-shelf ERP systems generally do not qualify. So we want to peel back the onion, so to speak, and kind of determine the portion of time that is spent on customizations of the ERP system and make sure that we can, one, document why the off-the-shelf solution does not work for your company or your industry, and then two, what specific modifications and customizations were made and why such changes were technically challenging and then three, we want to make sure we quantify the size of the problem or the measurable improvement. So say, for example, 
previous to this ERP implementation or customization, we had a completely manual process to quote prices for clients. And it generally takes an agent roughly 30 minutes to come up with the proper pricing, right? That's quantifying the problem. In the off-the-shelf ERP solution, we would need to track maybe 40 million variations of the pricing. But because we customized and introduced the tier structure pricing architecture, we're able to provide accurate and automated prices to customers within seconds. That, in a nutshell, kind of covers the three points that we want to make sure we document in some of these gray areas. Um, furthermore, I know Dan also touched on kind of contractual terms. So for these funded type of development costs, for example, if you're getting paid to customize your application for a client, to build an API for your client, or maybe contractual terms um, to custom build something for your client, these terms are extremely important as to whether the development costs associated is your R&D credit or your client's R&D credit. So the terms that support how either the IP is created resides with you or your client or the financial risks resides with you or your client really help showcase the development costs are your R&D versus your clients. Um, another important factor that we also want to think about is basically we want to establish that nexus between the qualifying activities and to the qualifying dollars. So to the extent you guys utilize time tracking, that's the perfect example of contemporaneous documentation because we now have the qualifying projects, qualifying activities, what those associated hours are, who worked on those projects, tracked real time, and it's hard for the IRS to argue otherwise. On the topic of contemporaneous documentation, to the extent that there are any files that your development team, development team creates as part of your process, things like project charters, release notes, sprint notes, whiteboarding pictures, architectural diagrams, and even emails that kind of discuss the design changes or challenges, why you're making these pivotal changes. These are all pieces of information that help substantiate your credit and that you should keep in your back pocket. Yeah, Vivian, I, I think that that was a great overview of the types of documents that um, we can help gather and uh, look for during this process. And I think sometimes clients even reach out to us and say, you know, we're looking to make this investment. We're working with an outside consulting firm to help develop this. What kind of things can we do to be proactive? And so these are the same types of things, um, these same types of contempor contemporaneous documents that you want to try to work with third parties and, you know, leverage uh, the right language in how they're billing you or how they're tracking time so that it's easy to take those invoices or that spend on third parties and convert it into, you know, what portions of the time might qualify. Perfect, guys. Thank you. And yeah, just to add something else, like in, in our R&D credit practice, you know, we have two types of clients um, where we're working with them to, to put together a, a claim for a software research credit. We have clients that are making investments in technology, as Dan referred to, and we also have clients that have technology development as their business. Both are entitled to the credit provided um, they have some substantial rights to it and they have some financial risk um, so, and they have economic risk associated with, with the endeavor. Um, one of the things, Dan, that's, I don't even know if it's too recent anymore, probably dates back to maybe like 2016, 2017, but directive, which was originally known as a, as a safe harbor directive, uh, specific to um, audited ASC 730 R&D costs um, came out and potentially was thought to, um, that it was going to change the way that uh, many companies went about documenting the R&D credit. With that said, um, I know you had some 
input on that. And I was wondering if you could give a, some background for our listeners on what is the directive, um, how is or was it used, and uh, how much do you see it coming up today? Yeah, thanks, Marty. It, it was there was a lot of excitement around the directive for technology companies. The idea being, can we, as you know, public companies operating as a technology company, can't we leverage an item on the financial statements for R&D, the line item that's been audited as a basis for what part of that might also overlap, like thinking of a Venn diagram of what would be R&D credit eligible. And um, so that was the genesis. Uh, the Silicon Valley Tax Director Group, along with a couple of large technology companies, um, spent a year or two really trying to hone in on that. And um, again, there was a lot of excitement that these companies could do significantly less work, spend less money on doing R&D studies. Um, but in the end, there was a pivot, and we presented with the IRS recently um, at our symposium on this topic. And ultimately, the IRS decided that certain costs for SAS, which are 350-40 costs on the financial statements, that they wanted to carve out and not include those costs. And because the vast majority of technology companies, that's the nature of how their business has pivoted. You know, you think of TurboTax, you know, that's primarily an online SaaS solution. Now, not too many people are buying the disk and downloading it. Um, it really took the benefit away from most companies. So I think in the end, there was a, a bit of frustration in the technology industry that that is the direction the IRS went. And so what we've really seen happen now is that most companies have decided to go away from using the directive because so much of the bulk of their eligible costs are carved out and they can't use it. And so um, they've moved back to more of a traditional approach as it relates to documenting the R&D credit. You know, when I think about my, my career historically with respect to research credits, dates back to about 2003. And I think at that time in our practice, um, when I was at a big four, we were probably doing, I don't know, maybe 30, 35% of the work or the clients that we had were software specific. And I think right mm -hmm. now, it's probably about 65%. It just sort of goes to show that everything is software now and the rules around software are both complex, um, but also um, easy to tackle if you understand how to go about that. And so I would encourage anyone who's listening to this to who may have a question um, about documentation with respect to software, best practices for purposes of the IRS, or if you haven't even claimed a research credit, um, we're more than willing to, to be available to you to sort of scope out what the benefit might be for you. So, you know, with that said, Dan and Vivian, thank you both very much for, I would say, both a uh, succinct and robust uh, discussion on R&D credits. For more information on Cherry Becker's tax credits and incentives advisory practice and the key tax benefits for growing business, visit cbh.com to explore ways we can provide support for your organization's tax credits and incentives requirements in the areas of R&D, cost segregation services, employee retention credits, energy tax credits, fixed asset um, analyses, and much more. As always, if you enjoyed the topic, please like, share, and subscribe to the Tax Podcast. And thanks again for listening.